This episode of the Asia Rising podcast was recorded in front of a live Zoom audience. To find out more about our upcoming events, where you can listen in and even ask a question yourself, go to latrobe.edu.au forward slash Asia. Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from Latrobe Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. The retirement of Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was met with concern and dismay in Japan. The long-serving leader had been in office since 2012, retained a strong popularity, and was well-respected as a thoughtful and progressive leader in the international arena. Following in his footsteps is Yoshihide Suga, a public face of the Abe administration who emerged as a leading favourite. The 71-year-old is from a modest background and a self-made man and would be an unusual leader in a country that favours political dynasties. Here to discuss this change in leadership for Japan is Dr Shiro Armstrong, Director of the Australia-Japan Research Centre at the Australian National University. Thank you for joining me, Shiro. Thanks for having me on, Matt. So I thought if uh, you could give us a bit of a explanation, you know, for the uninitiated who don't keep a close eye on Japanese politics, I am raising my hand here. How much of a surprise was the retirement of Shinzo Abe and how would you characterise the reaction? Yeah, look, it was quite a surprise um, to many internationally, but also domestically and, in fact, to his colleagues too. So we all expected Abe to stay on till September next year, 2021, where... Um, his term as LDP president finishes up. But with falling approval rating, health issues that continued to dog him, he called it quits and, and made this announcement and took everyone really by surprise. There were some rumours in the week leading up to his resignation, but it was quite a, a surprise. And there was a mixed response domestically. Um, mentioned he had a falling approval rating. Uh, it's largely due to a combination of scandals that had dogged him in, during his prime ministership. The most recent thing was uh, the handling of the coronavirus pandemic. So he wasn't very popular domestically because of that. Some of it looked indecisive, having the governor of Tokyo and Osaka push the charge for a lockdown, for example. So mixed response initially, but uh, as soon as his retirement was announced, really the approval rating for the cabinet went right up. I think the realisation for people that, you know, this is end of an era, political stability in Japan that was that Abe brought and also revitalisation of the economy that you know, may not have gotten as far as he or others wanted, but he really did boost that. And, and as you said, international leadership role that Japan had taken up. He just passed the milestone for longest serving prime minister earlier that week, longest serving continuous prime minister. He did resign in 2007 due to health problems, and these are there's a chronic illness he had. Uh, and in his resignation speech, he did talk about wanting to give whoever took over from him a chance to fight the pandemic with continuity, really, from what he was achieving and what their government was able to achieve. So, yes, he wanted to hand over with the least amount of disruption. He was the longest-serving leader by... Uh, what, a few days then, ultimately. 
not long, but, you know, still the longest. And retiring during his fourth term as Prime Minister, what do you think he'll be remembered for from his time in office? Yeah, uh, well, look, the first thing I think is he brought political stability to Japan that hadn't had political stability in, well, half a dozen years. So before Abe took over, there was a revolving door of Prime Ministers, a different Prime Minister each year for six years, including himself. Uh, so staying as he did as Prime Minister for seven and a half years, he was able to achieve a lot and bring stability there. So that's, a, I think, the first thing. Learning from his first year in, as Prime Minister in 2006 and seven, um, he focused on the economy when he came back and he campaigned on revitalising the Japanese economy in 2012. So he brought this Abenomics reform package to try to get Japan out of this lost two decades or so-called lost two decades of very low growth. Mm. So I think he'll be remembered for that, you know, really loose monetary policy, trying to get inflation back because Japan had just gone through a decade or more of very mild deflation, prices falling and try to get people investing and spending again. And I think in Japan, but also internationally, he's going to be remembered for his leadership, multilateral leadership, but international leadership, especially at a time when the United States and China engaged in a strategic competition, when the United States started to step back from its international leadership role with the election of Donald Trump and the withdrawal of the United States from the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, for example. And that's where Japan, you know, under Abe found itself in an unusual position of showing leadership internationally. Mm. What do you think remains on the list that he didn't get through? I'm, I'm sure he must have had a, a wish list somewhere that was probably derailed by, you know, everything 2020. Yeah, look, the, the biggest thing was constitutional revision. That's what his main, and he was very open about this, is to revise the constitution so Japan can be a more normal military and normal country. It's written about that, and that's really what his focus was. But what else did he leave undone? Well, the relationship with South Korea is in the worst state since 1965 when they normalised relations. He wasn't able to make progress with the relationship with Russia, and he spent a lot of political capital on that. Mm. He had worked very hard to improve the relationship with China, and they were expecting President Xi to visit Japan um, earlier this year before the pandemic hit. So a state visit from the Chinese president was on that list of of things he would have liked to have achieved, I think, if he could stay on. But the the biggest, as I mentioned, was uh, reforming and revising Japan's constitution, becoming a stronger military power. Mm. So new Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga is from a modest background, and that represents a departure from the norm of the political families that have dominated Japanese politics. So what do you think Japan can expect from his presidency? And uh, do you think that there'll be a shift in style and actions from Abe? Prime Minister Suga's really emphasised continuity, continuity in the agenda, um, on the economy and internationally. Um, That's seen, I think, in his cabinet appointments and the reappointment of key people in key places. A bit of shuffling around to keep the factions happy. But I think just remembering that Suga was the chief cabinet secretary for Abe for his whole term since 2012 Mm. and was instrumental in Prime Minister Abe and Japanese government's agenda. 
as a spokesperson, but also developing and implementing policy. So he comes with experience, with the network amongst the politicians and the ruling LDP and beyond, but he's also a very effective politician, not just in politics, but working with the bureaucracy. So I think the first thing is to understand we'll see continuity and he's stressed that and his actions have shown it, but he also does have a reform agenda that we know of. As you mentioned, his background, he's pretty big on strengthening local or regional economies outside the big cities. He wants to reform the bureaucracy. He has a lot of respect for the bureaucracy. He wants to have some administrative reforms, but to also bring in digitalization in Japan. So pretty big agenda, I think, but noting that he's been central to what Abe achieved over the last seven and a half years. And I think um, it's going to be pretty effective at continuing some of those. Mm. Do you see any big shifts on uh, dealing with COVID-19 on the coronavirus front at all? I don't think so. And I think that's because, um, as I mentioned, he was central to what they were doing already. Mm. Now, his record's not unblemished or anything on this. He was pushing for this um, domestic tourism campaign at a pretty bad time. And so that didn't do much for the other government's popularity and approval rating. But, you know, all in all, I think he has been central to the government response. He takes advice from the bureaucracy and the specialists, uh, and I see continuity in that, if not hopefully improvement. And Japan's done very well, mm. um, so hopefully the con- continuity there. What do you think it means for the cabinet that he's not from a big dynasty and his backgrounds are so modest? Is that just me making a big deal out of that, or is it a big deal for Japan as well? A lot of stories are being told. He's the son of a strawberry farmer, you know, self-made man, as you as you said. He went to night school uh, for university when he moved to Tokyo and worked in a factory earlier on. Um, and he worked his way up the ranks. But make no mistake, he's a, he's a politician, an effective politician that knows how to play the game and was central in the cabinet as the chief cabinet secretary. I think it is positive that he doesn't come from a political dynasty. Not all the Japanese leadership need to have their father or grandfather be prime minister or a cabinet member. Mm. Um, but I think that's that's a, a positive, yeah. So he's admitted that he's got a lack of experience and indeed interest when it comes to foreign policy. And the quote is, uh, he lacks the kind of diplomatic skills that outgoing leader Shinzo Abe has. So he, he was quite upfront about that. So what challenges do you think he will face in Asia and what can the global stage expect from Japan under his leadership? Yeah, well, he's got some pretty big shoes to fill. As I mentioned, Abe was really active diplomatically and really successful and had the charisma to deal with President Trump while um, strengthening relationships elsewhere, including with the, with the Chinese. So I think um, Suga coming in, this is a big question mark around his leadership, and we'll see pretty quickly, I, I think, by the end of this year, perhaps, how effective he's going to be. And the first thing he's going to have to deal with, really, is the US president after the election, either a second Trump term or Biden, making sure that that US-Japan alliance and security alliance is locked in, but also keeping the United States engaged in this part of the world. So um, that'll be challenge number one. You know, and then, of course, China and managing the China relationship. There's obviously differences of opinion within the ruling Liberal Democratic Party, 
got some pretty empowered China Hawks in there, but you have pretty strong support for Suga from the sort of pro-engagement camp, mm. uh, people like Nikai, Secretary General of the LDP. So it'll be a balancing act there. And I think um, Prime Minister Abe did a very good job gradually improving that relationship with China without compromising on you know, any values or interests for Japan. And I think Suga sort of made that clear that he wants to continue that. I mentioned South Korea before, Russia, he's probably not going to spend as much political capital. But I think um, so far the analysis and the commentary has been that he'll continue on with the free and open Indo-Pacific agenda from, from Abe. And the challenge is going to be for him meeting leaders um, and building relationships with these leaders um, that he's unfamiliar with. Mm. Suga has informed the UN that he is determined that Japan holds the delayed Olympics in 2021. Now, I don't even want to think about the logistical nightmare that that's going to be at the moment, not just for uh, any country that decides that they want to go to the Olympics overseas, but for Japan dealing with everything that's going on there. But how, how important is that to establishing his term as prime minister? Thinking about the logistics and if any country had to run a challenging Olympics, you'd want it to be the Japanese. Um, you know, they had the stadiums ready well before the Olympics were due to be held, extremely organised. Everything runs on time, of course. There's a strong commitment to holding the Olympics. And if they can, it'll be a pretty good news story for you know, the whole world, really, um, hopefully coming out of this pandemic and, and declaring victory. So how important it is, is it for him as prime minister look i i don't know it'll be important i'd say his domestic reform agenda and japan's leadership on the international stage is is more important but symbolically i think it'll be quite important and you can just imagine the sort of boost he'll get and the popularity he'll get potentially heading into an election late mm. next year if they're able to to hold it yeah, it must have been a disappointment for Shinzo Abe, you know, for it not to go ahead this year and to, to, to be something that he goes out on a high on. Then again, if it was held this year, it definitely would have been a high. On the, uh, the foreign affairs agenda, so Australia and Japan appear to have been strengthening relations under the Abe administration. So how do you see Australia-Japan relationships developing under the new administration? And are they likely to be on the same page when it comes to their Indo-Pacific concepts and priorities and how do they manage the great powers in the region? Yeah, our relationship, the important mm. relationship. And Japan's become one of our most important partners, our most important security partner after the United States, of course, and a massive economic partner for us. But the relationship was on a positive trajectory before Abe took over. Again, the stability that Abe brought, he, he did visit Australia a number of times every second year. It was very difficult to get a Japanese prime minister to visit before that mainly because they weren't in for, for long enough. But I don't think the relationship's going to miss a beat. It was a very close personal relationship that Prime Minister Abe had with all our prime ministers, and you saw a fair few of them. His first phone call to a foreign leader was with Prime Minister Morrison. Prime Minister Morrison's trying to visit Japan this year and be the first leader to meet uh, Prime Minister Suga. I think that's not just because of the importance of the bilateral relationship to both countries, but because, as you mentioned, the difficulties we're facing in the region, the US-China relationship and dealing with those big powers individually. Um, you know, we share some 
common interests there. Both have China as the largest trading partner and the United States as our security partner, but also navigating the, the US-China strategic rivalry. So Japan's leadership of concluding the CPTPP, the TPP without the United States, having that leadership from Japan, of course, strong support, um, the cooperation from Australia. Yeah, as I said, I don't think the relationship will miss a beat. I'll be very interested to see whether we can take advantage of some opportunities in working closer with the Japanese on their domestic reform agenda, for example, agricultural reform that he's made progress on, um, female labour force participation, or as Abe called it, womenomics, and, and revitalising their region. So it's not just the security agenda, uh, but that's a pretty big and important part of, of the bilateral relationship now. Mm. There was an announcement this week that was quad-related, uh, which will be hosted in Japan. So at least there's, there's movement on that front, which part of me thinks, oh, that happened very quickly, but I realise it's been in the planning for quite a while. So Yeah, so um, foreign ministers, our foreign minister, um, obviously Pompeo and um, Indian foreign minister are due to visit Japan early next month. So I think that's almost next week. Mm. And they'll probably get a chance to meet Prime Minister Suga, I think. So that's an important development. You know, being an economist, as I am, I worry about the security relationship running too far ahead of sort of economic initiatives in the region. So it'd be good to see some positive initiatives on the economic front. All right, so we'll take a question from the audience now. And uh, firstly, we've got one that's going to uh, Yuto Ito. So my question was the, at the uh, 75th United Nations Assembly, Suga reaffirmed his position on North Korea. While President Trump exchanged wars of war between North Korea, Japan's position as peacekeeper seems blurry to me. So what is the big picture behind Japan's foreign policy in coming years, let's say, like post-Trump years? Sorry, it's a big question. Yeah, well, let me just... I guess uh, focus on the North Korea issue for starters. Suga did say he's willing to meet with North Korean president without preconditions to talk about the abductee issue, become issue number one in Japan in its approach to North Korea. Um, and that was the same with Prime Minister Abe, of course, and before that. You know, that's an important domestic issue for Japan, but that's one I fear getting resolution there is can be extremely difficult. And that issue holds up progress on other issues. Uh, for instance, when we had the six-party talks, Japan had sort of sidelined itself by putting the abductee issue ahead of everything else, making that a precondition for talking about the nuclear issue and you know, nuclear disarmament issue and being an active partner in the six-party talks. So I understand that's a domestic issue that a Japanese prime minister can't get away from. But there is a bigger play, I think, in Northeast Asia that I think the Japanese government will have to focus on. And then you asked about what's Japan's foreign policy post-Trump. Well, we'll see when post-Trump happens. I mean, it's the same as it has been to find ways to work with partners. And Japan, in this case, is a middle power compared to China and the United States. And working with Australia, working with other countries to create this framework or, or region where we can shape and constrain 
China's behavior and China's rise while engaging China, of course, but also keep the United States engaged. And I think, uh, importantly, there's been a lot of outreach to Europe from Abe, the Japan-EU Economic Partnership Agreement was signed. Uh, Suda's, of course, called key leaders in Europe already, and there's going to be a big focus in deepening that Japan-Europe relationship too. Thank you for that question, Yuto. We'll now go to uh, Jeff Bronze, who has a very good question here for you, Shiro. My question is just how does Abe's resignation affect the LDP's domestic political opponents? So is it much of an opportunity to kind of reduce their domination they've had recently? Yeah, that's a good question, Jeff. Look, I, I think the Japanese opposition's in disarray and will continue to be. Now, I'm, I don't follow this as closely as others. I'd be surprised if many of you listening could name the main opposition party in Japan or any potential candidates. Now, I mentioned the governor of Tokyo, Koika Yuriko, before. I mean, she's a potential. She's got a lot of support in Tokyo, um, Tokyo being so central to Japan and so large. But there's no immediate sign of any opposition forming. I mean, the, the story of the last few years has been opposition fracturing. It's um, likely to be jockeying within the LDP it's been a relatively stable transition of government as well for, for Suga. And most people are retaining their positions. But I did hear that Shinzo Abe's youngest brother might be getting a, um, a new position. Is, is that an example, again, of the dynastical kind of qualities getting a bit of a leg up? Look, it is. So Abe's younger brother, Kishi, has become defence minister. Now, Kishi is um, the name of Prime Minister Abe's uh, grandfather, who's Prime Minister in the immediate post-war period. And so they're both grandchildren of Prime Minister and their father was Foreign Minister. So, yes, there's lots of dynastic continuity and you talk about continuity for Suga's cabinet. That's continuity to the extreme, bringing Kishi in. But, look, uh, from what I understand, he doesn't have a strong political base yet and he's sort of not proven. He, as Defence Minister, it'll be interesting, he's known as a China hawk, very close to Taiwan. It's just been back from Taiwan recently and rumour has it tried to organise a phone call between the Taiwanese president and Japanese prime minister. That hasn't happened, but it'll be interesting again how Suga balances that. And, and he'll have Abe as a special envoy, I think. That's the, the rumour and probably the sensible thing to do given what Abe has been able to achieve uh, and the personal connections he has around the region, around the world. All right. So um, for the final question, I will let my boss have this one. So, Beck, I'll uh, turn your microphone on and you can ask your question to Shiro. Hi, Shiro. Thank Hi, you Beck. so much for doing this. Uh, this is a terrific conversation. I've learned a lot. Um, it's just a, yeah, a great survey of a range of different issues. Uh, look, I wanted to actually ask you about the impact of the Trump administration on relations with Japan, but also uh, on the region more broadly. In the United States, there's this sort of backlash against alliances. And this isn't just about the Trump administration. This is something that's been going on for quite a while that the United States pays too much or it's too much of a burden keeping these alliances alive. So I'm wondering, are there fears in Japan about where that sort of backlash against alliances might lead uh, into the future? 
Mm. Well, great to hear from you, Beck, and a pretty big question to, to end the, the session on. Yes, there's a backlash against alliances in the United States. I think this is much more pronounced under Trump. And this is why Prime Minister Abe was the first foreign leader to visit the United States after Trump got elected, before he was um, inaugurated. So the famous meeting at Trump Tower and giving him the Japanese golf club and building a very strong and close relationship immediately. And, you know, I think Prime Minister Abe did a, as good a job as any leader at building a personal relationship because he understood that was what was important with the Trump administration, including playing golf and having hamburgers and wearing these hats and doing things that you can't really imagine a Prime Minister Suga doing. You know, it required a fair bit of charisma and some guts from Abe to look like a bit of a fool at times. But that was important. And importantly, getting assurances, reassurances on the alliance and keeping the US troops in Japan. And yeah, there is some question about the value of the alliance from time to time from the Trumps and beyond. Uh, but it is for deployment of US troops in the region and that that position for the United States is extremely important. So it was um, Prime Minister Abe, of course, reminding Trump of that, any chance he got, and helping you know, those around Trump, the sensible adult supervisors in the Trump administration while they were there, empowering them on, on the Japan relationship. So what has Trump meant for Japan? It's meant a huge amount of uncertainty in the bilateral relationship that Japan did extremely well in, I think, in dealing with. The bigger question, I think, is the uncertainty in Japan's external environment. And we've seen Japan step up on trade agreements and president of the G20, making sure that that successfully concluded without President Xi or President Trump walking out. President Xi's not likely to walk out, but um, without all that blowing up and you know, even just to get a, a leader's statement out of the G20, the, the bar is so low, the expectations are so low now because we hadn't had an APEC statement twice in a row. So Japanese diplomacy vis-a-vis -vis the US, but also making sure through the free and open Indo-Pacific and, and working with ASEAN and Australia, keeping that constructive, positive engagement of the United States in the region. I think Abe has been successful degree of difficulty 9.9 Prime Minister Suga has got a big challenge on his hands if if President Trump gets re-elected but so do we all. Given your economic interests Shiro I might actually just throw one more question in there from um, Billy McCarthy Price so Billy did you want to ask a question to Shiro? I would just love to hear more about whether the womenomics reform agenda will be something that you think Suga will continue with um, especially given the COVID-19 context when we know that it's having a disproportional impact on women's workforce participation? Look, good question. I think um, Japan's made a lot of progress on this under Abe, but from a very low base and has a long way to go. So, you know, female labour force participation is right up, but it's in um, what they call non-regular employment. So the insecure workforce in Japan, a lot of it, has been a big push from the Prime Minister and that's been helpful, but there's a long way to go. So with, with Suga, he's made it clear that this is something he'll continue and is important for Japan. It's important for Japan for many reasons, socially, but economically. There's a lot of 
really highly educated women who cannot get back into the workforce after having children, for example. And that's terrible generally, but when you've got a, a shrinking uh, labor force and an aging population, that's even more important. So this is going to continue. And one hopes that with some of the positives that have come out and very few positives from the coronavirus pandemic, but the digitalization, the ability to work from home, we hope that that can transform um, how Japanese companies and Japanese workers um, work and, and we don't have to go in uh, to the office and work long hours um, both parents that is can much more work from home and share the the job of looking after the family and, and the household tasks so that'll make a big difference if if that can continue and i think that is part of the digitalization agenda that he has um, so we hope the future of work for japan is not in the future but really now we can take advantage of some of the changes that have been forced on us from from COVID. All right, we might uh, we might wrap up the event there. So thanks for everyone t- for coming to the live podcast today. Thank you very very much, Shiro, for joining us tonight. Thank you, and thank everyone for the questions. That was that was fun. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from Latrobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your local friendly neighborhood podcasting service. Please leave a review. They are very appreciated. You can follow us on Twitter. Shiro is at Stow the Hero. And Latrobe Asia is at Latrobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.